0: The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. When Punya the 27th Indian ancestor was still a prince. The Buddhist master Bhashashita asked him, why do you want to leave home? And Punyamitra said, if I leave home, it is not for anything else. Bhashashita said, not for what? Punyamitra said, not for anything mundane. Bhashashita said, then for what? Punyamitra said, to do Buddha work. Why do you want to leave home? So in the Buddhist tradition, a home-leaver is normally referring to an ordained person. To be ordained is to leave home, the home of one's family, physical space, wealth, property. To be in the Japanese tradition, unsui, clouds and water. But I wanted to look at this, not so much from the perspective of the ordained, but in terms of how this relates to all of us. Home. Why do you want to leave home? The place where we live. To be at home is to be at ease, comfortable, amidst familiar surroundings. To have accumulated history and meaning in that place. It's the place we live in people we mingle with, the work we do. We can think of it as our body and mind. The, in a sense, the the furniture of our inner being. (laughs) Thoughts, emotions, perceptions, beliefs, dreams, and nightmares. So then, what is home leaving? Is it to leave all of that behind? Monastics, we leave our ordinary lives, leave home, and yet we're here. This becomes our home, with people and things and a lot of the same stuff. Is home leaving to leave the idea of home, a place, a location, something that we, a place we occupy? A home made of wood and brick seems pretty permanent. It was there yesterday, it's there today, it'll probably be there tomorrow. This body, very much a home. They appear objective to have their own essence, their own reliable nature, until they don't. When I was young, I grew up in my family's home, where I'd lived since I was two, so as long as I could remember, it was the only place I knew it was home. As far as I knew it would always be home, it would always be the place I would return to, until we had to move. And then someone else moved in, we moved out, somebody else moved in, it was no longer mine, or ours, it was theirs. In fact, my little sister, who was probably I don't know, 11, 12. She had, before we moved, before I think we knew we were going to move, she made a time capsule and put it up in the attic. And after we'd moved, one day, we were about a mile or so away, she took it, she realized she, she should get that time capsule back. So she walked over to that neighborhood, and up to the house, and opened the door, and she just walked in. Went up to the attic, got the time capsule. She was coming back down and she bumped into the woman of the house. Honey, can I help you? <laughs> and she said, no, I'm fine. <laughs> I just came to get something. <laughs> so it wasn't hers, but it was still kind of hers. <laughs> so what, where was home now? for me. The place we moved was definitely not a home. So then what could I rely upon? We can think of relationships as a home. They're, they're good, they're loving, they're constant, they're stable, reliable, until they change. Until they end, someone dies. Surely the earth is our home, constant, immovable, reliable, Until the ground shakes, until rains flood, fires break out, oceans swallow shorelines. What is home when home is no longer constant and reliable, predictable? Well, from the Buddhist perspective, it's what it's always been. It's the same. Nothing has changed. It appears and disappears. It rises and falls. It's born and dies. And so what is leaving home? Is it to leave home or is it to realize home was never what we thought it was going, it was, is, what we believed it to be, what is the real truth? The Guardian in his teaching on the Bodhisattva path said, well, for what purpose have you left the home life? Referring to monastics. We could think of this as, well, for what purpose have you left the life of samsara? Which is the... The vow of the bodhisattva is to free ourselves from the constant cycling and spinning of samsara. For what purpose have you left? Nagarjuna says we should ask ourselves, have I finished what is to be done in leaving home, or have I not? And that we should reflect now on whether or not I am doing that work, the Buddha work. the essential teaching is that everything is already in its original place. Everything is already complete. Not knowing that, not knowing that in one sense we are already home without taking a step and at the same time there is no home. That the only constant is that everything is impermanent. Everything is empty of anything ultimately or persistently or predictably constant, reliable. And so what happens in those moments where the ground shakes, where what we thought we could rely upon shows us something else? I remember being in New Zealand after those massive earthquakes in Christchurch well after the major earthquake itself, but they were having hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of aftershocks for months and months and months. And we were sitting in Christchurch and uh, doing such and the ground shook, everything shook. And it was the first, I mean, we've had a couple here, but it was the first time it was, it was very strong. And I had that experience of, this isn't supposed to happen. This is the one thing that isn't supposed to move, isn't supposed to shake. This is the one thing that I thought I could rely upon. So is it that on this path of liberation to free ourselves from that cycle of spinning and samsara, that we are here to change the world? Or is it that we are here to realize that in a certain sense, nothing is to be changed? Why did the Buddha begin the Eightfold Path with right view, even if it begins conceptually? What is it that we need to begin to understand? What is it we need to begin to think about and reflect on about this world? How do we begin to, on this path of non-attachment, of letting go, of not fixating, fixing, solidifying, reifying, how do we begin that path? How do we, in a sense, prepare ourselves for those moments that we are actually seeking when everything that we thought was, that everything that we thought was, isn't? Not in that way. I was listening to an interview recently with a a pain psychologist, a woman who has made it her her field of research, to to, um, study pain. And so I was thinking about this in terms of the things that seem so real and fixed, and sort of having their own independent force, like pain. And she talked about, she said, pain is the body's warning system. It's a danger detection system. She said, it's very complex, and it's subjective. But at the end of the day, she said the brain, which is where, where she said pain is created, its job is to save our life. That in a sense, our, our brain's job is to save our life, It's to um, be that guardian at the, at the front gate. She says this brain, this beautiful machine, uses all the available information in any given moment to decide whether or not to make pain when we encounter some situation? And if so, how much? Because that's the brain's job. In other words, how much danger are we in? How much of an alert do we, does, do we need to be given about what's, what's happening in the moment so that we can respond, take care of ourselves? She, said, she says, so if you can imagine what that actually looks like, your brain is using information from past experiences, right? because what else will it draw upon? It's using where you are, who you're with, your emotions, how you feel. It's incorporating your sensory messages, what you're experiencing through your senses, of course. And it's taking all of that to sort of evaluate a present moment where something is happening, to decide how much pain to create and to deliver to ourselves, so that we can be alert. She talked about people who because of genetics or physiology don't experience pain. And she said they don't usually live very long, right? Because they don't have those that protective messaging system. And then she told a story about two different construction workers being you know on big buildings, fairly dangerous job. One of them was on a job site, jumped off a platform, and jumped right onto a seven inch nail that went right through his foot. And so he is in excruciating pain. Everybody around him, all his coworkers, are horrified, right? So they rush him to the emergency room. He's screaming in pain. They give him an IV of opioids to help him with this sort of overwhelming experience of pain. And then the doctors began to very, very carefully remove his boot. And what they saw was that the nail had gone precisely between his toes. No blood, no wound, no tissue damage even. But his pain was very real. How is that possible? And she said his brain, that is his danger detector, used all the available information, memories of past pain experience, knowledge of the danger of the work environment, the panic he saw on his friends' faces, his own visual experience of looking at this nail through his foot, right? Just imagine that. And in all of that, the brain decided, yes, you are absolutely in danger. (laughs) So I'm going to deliver you a very heavy dose of pain to bring your attention to that, to protect him. And then she told another story of another construction worker who was using a nail gun, it accidentally discharged, and ricocheted backwards and clocked him in the jaw. And he had a little bit of a headache, a little bit of a toothache, but he kept on working. And he kept on doing that, working, going back to work for about six days. And then one day he said, told his wife, I think I'm going to go to the doctor and deal with this toothache. It keeps aching. So he went to the dentist, they did a scan, and they found a four-inch nail in his jaw. That when the nail gun discharged, he thought he saw the nail go into the wall in front of him. So again, she says, his brain, used all the available information, it saw the nail shooting across the room. He knew that he'd been hit, but he saw the real danger was that he was out of that danger. And so, the brain decided not to give him much pain. And what she made clear, and what we should know, right, as Buddhists, is that that experience is real. It is a real experience. That when we are suffering, we are suffering, we are experiencing something that we experience as a a reality, just as these people were. And she says, none of us are going to escape pain. It comes with human life. Whether you've had it in the past, or you have it now, or you're going to have it in the future. And of course, she's talking about physical pain. Pain is everybody's problem. We're all pain patients, she said, patients of pain. But then she draws the distinction between what she calls hurt and harm. Hurt is our subjective experience of something that's happened. And what she calls harm is what's actually happened to the body. Again, she's talking about physical pain. And then she says, our brain conflates the two. And it's adaptive. It's not necessarily a bad thing because it helps us. Because one of pain's most important jobs is to get our attention so that we change our behavior, right? We respond. And so if we think of that in terms of all kinds of pain, which can be excruciating, mental, Emotional, spiritual? That how are those experiences in the sort of wisdom, the intelligence of our, this miracle we call the human body and mind, is that also in some way, beyond just physical pain, serving to bring our attention to something, to get our attention? so that something changes. We change something. We don't just keep going the old way. And so in the Mahayana teachings, bodhicitta, the aspiration to practice, to begin to turn our attention to what is happening. What is happening that causes these various kinds of pain or suffering or dis-ease, confusion, dissatisfaction, disappointment, all that is encompassed in Dukkha. And of course, for a long time, for most of us, it takes time. Right? Because we acclimate to those various forms of pain. It's sort of the cost of living. You know, we do what we can. Actually, we do a lot (laughs) to try and deal with it, avoid it, Distract ourselves. I mean, what is aversion? The mechan- mechanism of aversion and the mechanism of pursuing pleasure and grasping and clinging, but trying to avoid pain and grab onto a little pleasure. And so, that if we think about all of that in terms of mind, now not just the brain as a as a physical organ, but mind, our whole system, our whole consciousness that is adaptive, highly adaptive, such that in delusion, pain can become pleasure. Right? What is empty becomes permanent. What is unskillful or unbeneficial becomes beneficial. What is upside-down becomes right-side-up. We can call hatred love. We can call war peace. And so, our adaptive capacity is both our, our brilliance and our, our, in a sense, our greater survival mechanism, and it's also one of our greatest dangers. And so, what is the home that we're leaving? What is its reality? And so, when we sit here, and you experience some pain, and the encouragement is to trust your zazen, trust your body, trust your mind. You are experiencing something that is uncomfortable. There's a probably a fairly simple explanation, right? You've been sitting a lot, your legs are tight, achy. It's one of the reasons we, in beginning instruction, say, in giving instruction on how to sit with that discomfort, is like, unless you, you know, if you have an injury or some situation in your body, in your legs, in your knees that you should be aware of, consider that in terms of the posture and how you sit so that if, if everything's fine, basically, so that when you're sitting and you're experiencing some pain, it's just that. It's just the part of meditating intensively. But then the instruction is, what? How do you work with your mind? What are you experiencing? How do you view that experience, that sensation? Which is real, you're having an experience. But the attention, because of the Buddha's understanding, the realization of things not possessing inherent characteristics and attributes, not possessing inherent power, we turn our attention to the mind. And so whether we concentrate more fully on the breath, for instance, or whether we become the pain, shikantaza, whether you hold that experience, that sensation within this vast expanse, so that nothing is being denied, but that you're working, you're exploring. What is the mind creating around this? You know, in my early years, when and I experienced a fair amount of discomfort in sitting, But I had done a lot of things in my life, sports and all, you know, just a lot of physical stuff that often involved different kinds of pain and discomfort and stuff. So, you know, I didn't have a particularly negative relationship or association, but I had experiences of pain and sitting and session that were, you know, humbling, (laughs) got my attention, and where I would, my mind would start to extrapolate and, you know, I I, I. thought i heard an ambulance siren, you know, gurneys being brought in, you know. <laughs> and I could just watch my mind pick up on the sensation, right? Or I might sit down, you know, if I'd been experiencing pain during periods, I might sit down at the beginning when everything was fine and think, I wonder if I'm going to, you know, I'm going to feel it again. Am I going to feel it again? Is that it? Is that beginning of the pain? I think that's it, you know. And I would both actively participate in, in the creation of that and watch that happen. And sometimes I wasn't able to, I was able to watch it but not stop it. I wasn't able to let go because it was so strong and my, my meditation was not that developed. But I remember the first time when, it, when I really, when it shifted and the pain really disappeared. And other times where it didn't disappear but it wasn't the same. It wasn't really bothering me. There was still a sensation there, but it didn't bother me. And afterwards, I thought, what is that? Because I didn't move, so whatever was causing that pain was still happening. Right? Whatever configuration of my legs or the blood vessels, whatever the, the physiology of that was, was still there. Nothing did move. But my experience of it changed significantly, and I began to think, "What? what? And I thought, well, is it mind control? Am I like, like subduing the pain? Because I thought I don't want to do that. Because that's not, that's not something I can rely upon, right? That's not actually going to free me of, of any kind of pain. But then when I reflected, I thought, no, I'm not doing that. I actually was relaxing into it in a way that, that I might not have done before. And so I didn't really understand what was happening, but I knew something significant, that I'd seen something significant in terms of what I thought was so real and fixed and would only change at the end of the period. And that my mind's capacity to create that and extend that, you know, magnify it, compound it. And that that was a, a lot of application of effort in my mind. It was working very hard and hard in that. And then when it shifted, and there was a relaxation, a trust, a surrender, an entering into it wholeheartedly, that something very, very different happened. And not just in that part of my body, but throughout my whole body. And on some level, I realized it's, I don't know what happened, I don't know what it is, but it's not entirely what I thought. And I also recognized how the pain had inspired me to really sit in a very strong way, a deep way, right? To really apply myself because you know it was getting my attention. And then I and I just saw the sort of the seeds of, oh, I need to do that again, right? I need to experience that level of pain so that I can have that level of meditation. I thought, no, no. The pain didn't make me do that. The discomfort, the sensation I was experiencing didn't do that. I just motivated myself. I did that, motivated by the experience I was having. I should be able to do that when I'm completely at ease and not rely on the pain. All of the homes that we leave along this Buddhist path. Why? So that we can do Buddha work. Why do you want to leave home? Punyamitra says, if I leave home, it's not for anything else. It's not for anything else. What a beautiful response. So simple. What does he mean? Not for anything else. Ask yourself that question as you're sitting. Why are you sitting? Not for anything else. Why are you doing kinhen? Not for anything else. In any moment, why are you engaging? Why are you here in this moment, practicing this moment? Not for anything else. You know, that's part of the... the I mean, that's such a big part of what the gift, we might say, that session and these various practices are giving us is that because in a sense, we have to leave home. We leave our ordinary day. Many of you leave your actual physical home, right? Residents leave the ordinary day, life that we're living all the weeks when we're not in session. And, then, and so we're, we're putting aside, right? We say we're putting aside our normal responsibilities. We close the main gate. We're not conducting business in the way that we normally do. We're in silence, we're following the precautions, we're not in communication, we're not reading the news. So in essence, there's nothing that we need to do. There are no decisions we need to be making, there are no problems we need to be solving. Session so is expressly created for that purpose, to give us that. So that in each moment of the day, when you are sitting, when we are doing urioki, bowing, doing work practice, why? not for anything else. To be able to have the experience that the teachings are pointing to all the time. And then until we really experience the depth of one complete moment, where there is nothing else, and the utter completeness, the utter fulfillment, satisfaction of that, because we have not brought anything else with us to that moment. And so when we are here and we continue to go home <laughs> and bring something from home back with us, some of our work, conversations, relationships, things we got to figure out, things we're going to have to do when we get home, we're sort of rupturing, right? Working against that very exquisite vessel that we have created that we are creating together and that has been given to us right by populating a moment that is wondrous in its simplicity and we make it complicated and busy and of course that's the habit that's our habit and and to what degree is our mind in subtle ways keep reaching back reaching out, because it perceives that as survival. That's how the self survives. That's how we continue to remain in this home of this body, of this place, where I can locate and measure and compare. And is that why when we experience deeper moments, of silence and stillness. Mindfulness begins to move into concentration, into samadhi. We begin to let go. The physical body is not so present in our mind. Things pass away much more easily. There are not so many concerns. It is more and more not for anything else. And then we get frightened. We become anxious, right? That as our consciousness is actually leaving home and unifying, there's a little part of ourselves that gets worried, scared, right? This is not familiar. And so we have to just stay steady and let that happen again and again until that becomes our ease. Kazan says, because there is nowhere to dwell, the home is broken up and the person drops away. Here, samsara and nirvana both disappear without being effaced. Enlightenment and affliction are originally irrelevant without being abandoned. Irrelevant meaning not suffering. It is not only like this now, from age to age, it is not changed by phases. That is all through the ages, it has been like this open as space, without inside or outside, clear as pure water. This is your original mind. It's everyone's mind. So you shouldn't fear home life, and you shouldn't be proud of leaving home. <laughs> Just stop seeking outwardly, turn to yourself to understand. Very important. There's nothing that we need to reject in this home life and the things of our, the stuff of home. That's not the problem. And we shouldn't be elated or proud when we've let it go or seen through it. That's just the ordinary bread and butter for a practitioner. Just stop seeking outwardly. And then he says, for the moment, try this. Do not scatter your mind. Do not look around. In other words, mind your own business. <laughs> but observe carefully. Now, what can you call self? What can you call other? And he says this in a very succinct way, but this is, as this is Buddhist meditation. Do not scatter your mind. Calm your mind. Practice your mindfulness in every moment. Let that develop deeper into samadhi. Do not look around, right? Come back, return, 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 and observe carefully. Let your mind be bright and clear. See, examine, without thinking. Let your mind reveal itself to you. Let pain, let all of the homes that we occupy reveal themselves to us. And in those moments, what can you call yourself? What can you call other? Since there is no polarity of self and other, what do you call good and bad? At what point is a sensation become good? At what point is it decidedly bad? In that very moment, where do you find yourself? What is your position in relationship to that? That will show you something. Then he says, if you can do this, your original mind is basically evident, as clear as the sun and moon. I'll end with Hongzhi, some words of Hongzhi. Your home is a single field. It's clean, it's vast, lustrous, self-illuminating. Because of your nature, your nature is self-illuminating. It reveals itself to the self. When your spirit is free, empty, without conditions, when awareness is serene, without cogitation, mental activity, then Buddhas and ancestors appear and disappear, transforming the world. Not just Buddhas and ancestors, but the whole phenomenal universe. How amazing it is that all people have this, but just have not yet polished it into bright clarity. Solitary glory is deeply preserved, enduring throughout ancient and present times as the merging of sameness and difference. It becomes the entire creation's mother, Prajnaparamita. Truly embody this. Please, he says, embody this. Take the backward step and return home. It's only through that Deep intimacy, intimate contact with breath, with awareness, with a feeling, with an emotion, with your foot on the floor, with a taste of food in your mouth, that we begin to we realize, we have the opportunity to realize something is there, but it's not what we thought. What is the nature of this? That is what the Buddha said, is our liberation. And so, in this complete session, let us practice this all the way through, that in order to find our home, we have to return home. To return home, we have to leave home. And to leave home, you don't have to... Move one hair, one muscle, one step. You don't have to do anything, actually. Try this. For the moment, try this. Do nothing. Absolutely. And your practice, because of habits, will require a little bit of effort to be able to naturally be at that place where you do absolutely nothing, and in that everything is as it was in its original place. Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats and residency, Please visit us online at zmm.org.